The number of men, women and children living in emergency accommodation in Ireland just keeps going up. Nearly 10,000 people are currently without a home in Ireland. 11,397 people. 12,000 for the first time. Part of Ireland's response to this crisis has been to funnel money into charities providing emergency accommodation. But these charities are now straining to keep up. Charities helping those at risk of homelessness have warned that thousands will have nowhere to go, with emergency accommodation almost at full capacity. One of these charities is the Peter McFerry Trust, led by campaigner Father Peter McFerry, an outspoken critic of government policy. Homeless families and homeless children has gone up every single month. So we have an emergency and uh, I see no evidence from this government that they even recognise that there is a crisis. But now, the Peter McFerry Trust is in big financial trouble, as Irish Times reporter Jack Power revealed earlier this month. For one of the main providers of homeless accommodation to be in in the midst of such a financial and governance crisis and storm, it really is concerning for the state's homelessness service apparatus. The crisis raises the question, was the Peter McFerry Trust incapable of keeping up with Ireland's runaway homelessness problem? Did they expand too quickly to try and meet that crisis, you know, meet that demand for homeless accommodation year on year on year? This is In the News from the Irish Times. I'm Sarah Chapalak. Today, how one of Ireland's leading charities ran into trouble and what it says about our homelessness crisis. And before we start, just to mention that you may have noticed I've been away for a few months. I was on maternity leave, but I'm now happy to be back and co-presenting in the news with my colleague Bernice Harrison. So, Jack, Father Peter McVerry is a name that's familiar to everyone in this country due to his outspoken advocacy for the cause of homelessness. His name is above the door of this organisation and in some ways it's almost beyond reproach. Can you tell me a bit about his background and how he became involved in homelessness services? Yeah, so Father Peter McVerry, you know, is a a Jesuit priest um, and really, I think, for 40 years now, has been involved uh, in in the charity. Um, he set it up at the time. It was called the the Arup Society, um, mm-hmm. and you know they would have been very very small scale. Mm-hmm. I think they bought. It was only in the early two thousands. You know, twenty years after they they'd been set up that they bought their first um, two apartments that were used for for housing. So that kind of gives you a sense of the the size of the charity at that point. And then over the following, say, fifteen years, you know, we've seen the charity grow exponentially to a point where, you know, I said it had two apartments there that we use for housing. Now I think it has more than 600 properties. Some of those, you know, significant hostels to, you know, house a significant amount of people, you know, 70 or 80 people. The size of it, you know, it went from a a, a really small charity, you know, run really on the back of Father Peter McFerry himself to one of the behemoths of the state's response to homelessness crisis. Last year, I think it had an income of of 60 million, which will kind of tell you the size of it. You know, the vast majority of that would have come from state funding. Its biggest funder would be the Dublin Region uh, Homeless Executive, which kind of coordinates homelessness services across the four Dublin councils. Um, So, you know, it's really up there with Focus Ireland, um, DePaul, the Simon communities as one of the and big providers of homelessness services. So, Jack, this exponential growth that we've seen within the charity over the last 15, 20 years, um, and it's now become one of the biggest providers of homelessness services in Ireland, as you've mentioned, how did that happen? Can you tell me about this evolution? 
the rapid growth of the charity kind of dovetailed with, unfortunately, the the rapid and increase in in people who, who became homeless. Really over the last, say, 10 years, you know, you'd have similar levels of kind of growth in other homeless charities. But the Peter McFerry Trust in particular, it seemed, had a more kind of defined spike in, I suppose, just the, the size of its services, really the demand, you know, for homeless accommodation, for other services that kind of work with people who are homeless to try and get them back on their feet and get them into into tenancies where they can, you know, kind of move on with their lives. I was speaking to a, a senior official who works in the homelessness services for the state, and they said the sense was that they got of the Peter McFerry Trust, that they were always ones that would put their hand up if a local authority or the state had an ask for, you know, can you do more? Mm. Uh, they were definitely one of the ones that would kind of kind of move heaven and earth to try and, you know, meet that demand, really. So I suppose that's kind of where the charity's rapid growth has kind of come from. The Trust now has a staff of over 500 people with 12,000 people availing of its services. Its turnover is around 60 million euros. So that's a huge organisation run by a professional board of management. Peter McVerry is on that board, but he's not the chief executive. So what exactly is his role? How involved is Peter McVerry in the day-to-day running of the charity these days? Yeah, so he's not really um, involved in the day-to-day operations anymore. I think they've had a chief executive since around 2005. Um, Pat Doyle was the first chief executive of the, of the charity and, and he stayed in that role for around, uh, I think, 18 years or so, mm-hmm. stepping down at the start of this year. Um, I think he announced in January that he was, after you know, nearly two decades, he was he was stepping down. In terms of you know, Father Peter McFerry, as you said, he's on the board of the charity as the, the secretary. And, and I suppose his role these days is primarily would be seen as kind of an advocate um, you know you'd regularly hear him on on the the airwaves discussing the homelessness crisis uh, lending his voice to um, you know calls to address it so that's really his his main role um, as I would kind of see it. The Peter McFerry Trust is just one of several organisations providing these types of services in Ireland and sometimes these organisations are in competition with one another to get contracts can you explain how that works? Yeah, it's it's slightly kind of complicated for the listener, but I suppose to try and keep it kind of simple, these various different kind of organisations and, and providers uh, will bid for contracts. That, say, for example, the Dublin Region Homeless Executive um, has a contract to run Housing First Services, which is kind of an important um, programme that moves people who've been kind of long entrenched in homelessness. They might have mental health challenges, addiction challenges, and they'll be moved from, say, a homeless hostel into an apartment. It's their own kind of tenancy. And they'll provide intensive supports from, say, a provider like the Peter McFerry Trust or, say, Focus Ireland um, to work through those other issues like addiction or mental health challenges and, and kind of try and get them on their feet and be able to you know, live, live an independent life. So I think that um, key programme was initially provided by both the Peter McFerry Trust and Focus Ireland in Dublin. And then I think in recent years, the contract kind of came up for renewal and they both bid on it again. And the Peter McFerry Trust won the contract uh, ahead of Focus Ireland. And I think this has actually been a kind of a point of tension between the two charities since there was a bit of a sense that the Trust put in a lower bid then it would cost to nearly run the service. And, you know, this is something that's kind of rankled between Focus and, and the Peter McFerry Trust. So you have that sense of competition that charities are, are vying for these big contracts. Often how the procurement system works in Ireland is 
it's heavily weighted towards people who put in lower bids. So potentially we kind of have a situation, we've seen this in other um, in other large kind of public contracts where you know a low bid goes in and that's chosen as the the winning bid. And then it nearly creates a problem after the fact for the provider, say the Peter McFerry Trust, who's who's won the state contract to provide that service that that maybe they'll be, I suppose, having to look for money from fundraising or, or elsewhere to make up the difference of providing the cost of that service. So that's kind of something that has been raised as a potential issue at the heart of, of how we provide homelessness services in, in Ireland. We've recently learned that the Peter McFerry Trust has been grappling with a major financial crisis due to the serious cash flow issues and significant debts. At the centre of this crisis is an 8.3 million euro tax bill. Can you talk us through how this crisis came about? Yes, so we first heard kind of rumblings of this in August, where at that point it was reported that the Peter McFerry Trust, I think in uh, early July, had gone to the Department of Housing um, and the Dublin Region Homeless Executive and basically said that they were having significant cash flow issues. We've since learned that, you know, at that point, the charity was basically on the brink of collapse. Um, such were the the seriousness of its outgoings and its ingoings, you know, not, not matching up. And as you said, one issue at play was significant um, revenue debts. That basically, the charity had taken advantage of a COVID-19 scheme where they could warehouse the debts and, ob- and liabilities they had to the revenue commissioner over a period of years. And then that's meant that they're, they're now facing a, a bill to, to meet those debts that's coming due of, of eight million charities ex- experienced you know fundraising difficulties during the pandemic and stuff like that that also kind of played into it and it seems to be that the trust has got itself to this position where it's got that significant revenue liability it's got debt from other suppliers unpaid bills from other suppliers and at one point you know it, it didn't have enough money to to meet all those obligations to pay staff to pay those debts as they fell due and what they've had to do is I suppose this will give people a sense of how grave the financial crisis is, is they've had to start selling off um, properties, significant properties that would have been used for accommodating large numbers of of homeless people. One property in Santry they sold and they got, I think, one million for it. They've planned to sell other properties to try raise around another six million. So it really, really is kind of a, a kind of crisis point and... I suppose they're trying to manage their way out of that crisis, but it it seems to be getting worse rather than better at the moment. This decision to sell properties in this way, is that not contrary to the entire mission of a homelessness charity? Yeah, and I think that that'll be one issue that possibly amidst all of this um, is maybe getting kind of lost a bit that, you know, I know for sure that some of these properties that they're selling or looking to sell have or are being used for homeless accommodation, which means that, you know, one of the, state's key planks of its homelessness services um, is selling off assets um, and housing stock effectively or emergency accommodation stock uh, possibly at a time when they're not getting the best deal for it because buyers will be aware that they're under such financial pressures that they might have to take a lower bid than maybe the uh, the property would be worth in, in better times. Um, so that, that's really an issue that it goes to the heart of the state's, I suppose, kind of oversight or responsibility here, how much property is is the trust going to have to sell off to try and get itself uh, righted again? And and at that point, how much housing stock or emergency accommodation stock will have been lost in in the process? 
I'll continue my conversation with Jack Power after this short break. Jack, Francis Doherty, Chief Executive of the Trust, resigned early on Wednesday, October 11th, and he said the charity was facing, quote, imminent financial collapse and that it suffered from, quote, repeated and long-standing governance failings. He also said he had come across a substantial amount of concerning information about spending and financial matters. Doherty has only been in that job since June. Before that, his predecessor was Pat Doyle, who'd been there for nearly two decades. That doesn't sound very good or look very good. Do we know what condition the trust was in when Doherty took over from Doyle earlier this year? Yeah, so at the start of this year, Pat Doyle, um, as I said, who's kind of been the longtime chief executive of the charity, announced he was going to step down. I think he left the role, I think, at the end of May. Around the same time as well, Brian Friel, who'd been the deputy CEO, also left. And so Francis Doherty was was selected as the, the new chief executive of the charity. He'd previously been the director of housing and director of communications in the trust. And I think he'd worked there for around a decade himself before. So he took over on the 1st of June, I suppose very quickly afterwards, he discovered that what was facing him was was really a mammoth task. Such were the serious financial pressures that the charity was facing. I think he he used the words, as he said, you know, by July, it was facing the prospect of imminent financial collapse. He said that, you know, for his part, he tried to really right the ship and and bring it back from the brink of collapse. And what was clear you know, we got a hold of his resignation letter to the board that that he wrote last week when he stepped down. Uh, what was clear was over that period, you know, between June and then and during this crisis that there had really been a massive breakdown in trust between Francis Doherty and the board of the charity while they were trying to navigate their way through this crisis. How has the trust itself responded to all this controversy and the resignation of its chief executive? It really hasn't said a lot, to be honest. Its response to many press queries will be to to not respond, mm. basically. It's repeated this line that its priority is the, the continuity of services and, and maintaining services. So it, it really, I suppose, is in, in, it's in firefighting mode at the moment. The sense seems to be that the board are kind of trying to batten down the hatches in response to obviously you know, significant pressure from, from media. This has all happened over the past few weeks. So what condition is the trust in now? Is it in a position to continue providing its services? Minister for Housing, Dara O'Brien, I asked him this at a, at a recent kind of doorstep press conference and, and his, he repeated that, and it's something that the government's line has been since the start of this crisis, is that the services will be protected, that the services you know, are going to continue and the state reading between the lines, you know, the state won't let the charity or the services provided by the charity uh, collapse. They've set up an oversight group with department and and other kind of homeless services officials to kind of keep, a, I suppose, a watching brief on what's happening. But, you know, we've got a situation where the outgoing chief executive's own words, the charity was on the brink of collapse. We had a situation, I think, um, a week and a half ago, where a supplier who um, provides agency staff to the trust services effectively threatened to pull out entirely over the weekend because they hadn't been paid and, you know, a uh, kind of an emergency workaround had to be found where, you know, they're promised that they'd get paid the following week and they then provided agency staff to staff those kind of crucial services. So it's still touch and go, I'd say, 
in terms of how the trust kind of survives this uh, and whether it potentially needs, you know, emergency state funding. They've said to date that they haven't requested any, you know, emergency funding or any bailout or anything like that. The approved housing bodies regulatory authority has appointed inspectors to carry out a statutory investigation into the trust. They did that in late September. And there will be another investigation by the charities regulator. This shows how serious this situation is. But what do these investigations aim to achieve? Both regulators were notified in um, in July that you know the charity was having significant cash flow problems. And kind of since then, they've been, you know, engaging with the charity you know, kind of writing to, writing to them, looking for various records or plans or board minutes of meetings, stuff like that. And so it got to a point, I suppose, that the approved housing body regulatory authority was the first one out of the traps to say that they were going to, they had enough, I suppose, information of concern about the financial issues facing the charity to launch a, a full statutory investigation, which, as I said, is where inspectors will be appointed. They'll go in to examine the financial matters, governance matters, and to, to really kind of investigate and try to get to the bottom of things. That's kind of when it went from an issue of there's a suggestion of some cash flow problems to, you know, this is a real crisis facing the charity when, when you've got a regulator appointing inspectors. And then following that, around a month later, the charity's regulator followed suit and said they were also going to set up a full statutory investigation to look into the governance and financial issues. And so both of these regulators, I think, will kind of be looking at different different things. You know, the approved housing bodies regulator's brief is is more defined to just that, uh, while the charity's regulator scope is is a bit broader. You'd imagine that would take in wider issues around governance as well. Uh, and those, I suppose, investigations, they tend to take a while. It, it'll definitely be possibly a year or more before we get reports for, from either of those, I would imagine. And I suppose during that time, it, it just speaks to the sense of, as I said, crisis facing the trust that you've got not one, but two statutory regulators you know, actively investigating you. Minister for Housing, Dara Bryan, has, has said he is keeping a close eye on the situation and that he is looking to protect the services that are provided through the trust. But in the bigger picture, this controversy won't endear the charity to politicians or the public. I mean, could all this really damage the charity? Could it lead to public support and fundraising support drying up? Yeah, I think definitely that would be one of the big risks now is that on the back of this kind of crisis and the back of, you know, regulators going in, that fundraising will dry up, donations will dry up, potentially staff, there'll be a sense of staff wanting to jump ship, maybe, you know, move to a different service, a different homeless provider. And, you know, that'll really all just throw more fuel on the fire to an already cash-strapped organisation if donations dry up, if staff start to leave and it's difficult to hire replacement staff as it, you'd imagine it would be during during a crisis like this, the charity's in the eye of the storm at the moment. Whether um, and in what shape it kind of comes through this um, is kind of yet to be seen. You'd imagine if there was a need for any kind of state bailout or significant emergency funding that that would come with strings of significant requirements for reform, governance reform. We've already had the chief executive step down because he, Francis Doherty, because he says his position is untenable due to the relationship with the board. There would be questions for the board if a bailout was needed, whether the board as is would be able to remain intact or or whether there would be need for, for reforms there. You'd imagine if the state is writing a large cheque uh, to bail the charity out, that 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 wouldn't um, that wouldn't be a one-way street. That they'd need assurances over 
as I said, the governance and the management of the charity if it needs saving in terms of a financial bailout. So it, it really is, you know, the, the charity's kind of darkest hour in its, in its 40 or so year history. Speaking to, um, you know, department officials, officials in homelessness services, officials or, um, or staff in, in other homelessness charities. And the universal view is really the services provided are too important for the charity to be allowed to collapse. You know, it's, you know, you can't and officials can't countenance a situation where, you know, somebody, as I said, who's providing 2,000 emergency accommodation beds to people who are homeless a night, how that's taken out of the system, which, you know, is already kind of creaking at the seams with, with increasing numbers of people becoming homeless. Jack, did the homelessness crisis in a way actually cause this issue? Because it has forced the trust, as you've referenced, to grow so quickly in a rather short space of time. I think that's certainly going to be one of the things that is is examined in kind of the fallout of all this is, you know, as I said, you know, the numbers of becoming homeless due to problems in the wider housing market have, have only gone upwards in the last decade or so to, you know, we're nearly setting a new record every month now in terms of the numbers becoming homeless. And and in response to that, you know, the Peter McVeigh Trust and other homeless organisations, but in particular the Peter McVeigh Trust, rapidly seems to have expanded year on year on year to try and meet that crisis, you know, meet that demand for emergency accommodation, demand for homeless accommodation. And I think that'll definitely be one thing that is examined now is, did they expand too quickly? And and is that why we found ourselves, you know, in a situation where they expanded to the point of collapse? And I think that is something that maybe we'll only find out in the wash of these various uh, inspections by regulatory bodies in the the fallout of the crisis. But it, it's definitely one question and it's definitely one point that has been made to be by, by more than one person in terms of officials and staff in the wider homelessness service. There's no doubt that the Trust provides a vital service in this country. But does what's emerged in the last few weeks show that the way that we, the Irish state, provide homelessness services actually needs a rethink? Is placing so much control over such a vital service in the hands of a charity a good idea. The government has kind of been happy to, to outsource a lot of kind of crucial services to private providers, voluntary providers, NGOs, um, whether that's in the kind of the healthcare system, um, you know, whether that's in the direct provision system and, you know, whether that's in the homelessness services system. It's grand when when all is going well in said company or a voluntary provider or charity, but when something like this happens, then suddenly it becomes not just a crisis for the charity, but also a crisis for government and what the knock-on effects are for the state. Jack, thanks so much for your time today. That's all for today. For more of Jack's reporting on the Peter McVeary Trust and Ireland's homelessness crisis, you can subscribe at irishtimes.com forward slash subscribe. I'm Sarah Pollock. This episode was produced by Declan Conlon and John Casey. In the news, we'll be back tomorrow.